Thanks for downloading this episode of Backstory, another chance to hear our show on advocacy journalism, which traces the story of two pioneering reporters who put themselves on the line in pursuit of the truth. If you like the show, there is plenty more at BackstoryRadio.org. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explores the history behind today's headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Now, if you're new to this podcast, Brian, Joanne, and I are all historians, and each week we take a topic that's in the news and explore it across American history. This week, we're continuing our series on the history of media in America. And today, we'll tackle a sticky subject, advocacy journalism. And what we mean by that are reporters who take a position, like Univision's Jorge Ramos and the Atlantic's ta Coates. Both advocate for particular perspectives of Latinos and African Americans, respectively. Today on the show, we're going to look at that tradition of advocacy journalism and consider the role of the reporter in society. We'll have stories of two very different journalists who tried to blend reporting and advocacy with their commitment to accuracy. We'll also talk about objectivity. Has Walter Cronkite's famous tagline, that's the way it is, really ever been true? So, Joanne, Brian, I want to start the show today on a sunny Tennessee day in September of 1883. An African-American schoolteacher named Ida B. Wells boarded a train in Memphis. Historian Paula Giddings picks up the story. The trains were very important to African-Americans in this period of what it represents. I mean, the trains are bringing communities together. They're going, you know, transcontinentally at, at this point. And blacks saw this as a very important emblem of, what, of their first-class uh, citizenship. Remember, this is less than 20 years after the Civil War. Blacks across the South are trying to claim the rights that have been promised to them after emancipation. And train travel, believe it or not, was a major battleground in the late 19th century. One of the ways African-Americans expressed their rights is to buy a first-class ticket. And that's what Ida B. Wells was doing on that September day in 1883. I mean, picture it. She has a parasol. She's wearing long white gloves. She's wearing a long, full-length dress, corseted at the waist. She's the picture of respectability. She goes into the first-class colored car, but she sees that people are smoking there. And there was even a white man who was drunk there. And Wells was hearing none of it. She decided it was better off for her to go to the ladies' car, where those who could travel quietly and with a sense of class, basically, found their seat. Okay, so Nathan, she leaves the first-class colored car, as they would have put it, because it was rowdy and smoky? Yeah, I mean, she felt she had the right to sit in first-class accommodations because she bought a first-class ticket. So she leaves the first-class colored car and moves to the first-class ladies' car, where she had sat before. It was mostly full of white women. That decision to enter the women's car would propel Ida B. Wells onto a new path, one that would make her a household name in America. I regret to inform you, ma'am, but I cannot accept your ticket in this car. The conductor, William Murray, when he asked for her ticket about a mile into the trip, determined that she was not indeed a lady. She couldn't sit in the lady's car. Did he say that to her? I mean, did he say, you are not a lady? 
he basically said that she should be in the colored car. Conductor asked her to leave. She refused to move. I intend to ride, right? There were efforts uh, to get her out of the car. She first said no verbally. Then he put his hands on her, actually grabbed her by the arm and tugged her so hard that it tore the sleeve on her dress. Wells, in response, latched her feet beneath the seat in front of her. Wow. <laughs> then, then decided to take a bite out of the conductor's hand and, and drew blood. She scratched him with nails. Until finally she was actually physically extricated. <laughs> Took two or three extra people to basically forcibly drag Wells from the ladies' car wow. to the colored-only car. But here's a question. What are the other ladies in the car doing? Believe it or not, Joanne, they were actually cheering. And not, and not cheering for Wells, but cheering for the conductors who were dragging Ida Wells out of the ladies' car wow. and back to the colored-only car. Wow. Here's how Wells described it later. Some of them even stood on the seats so that they could get a good view and continued applauding the conductor for his brave stand. Nathan, this is an incredibly compelling story, but is this the train to nowhere? I don't really understand where advocacy journalism (laughs) is coming up along the track here. Well, a few things come out of this incident. First, and importantly, Wells sues the train company and wins, though it's later overturned on appeal. Secondly, Wells is asked to write about her experience. Which she does in a local black paper called The Living Way. Her story gets a big response from black readers, and she decides to give up teaching and become a journalist full-time. She moves from her own story to describe and document the experiences of black citizens across the Jim Crow South. And uh, she would later um, say that journalism, in journalism I found the real me. Mm. Uh, And so, you know, so so this was... um, uh, uh, the, the, that the beginning of, of that career and of uh, her really pursuing the craft to express uh, herself. So Nathan, it sounds like Ida Wells found her voice and she's found what she wants to do with that voice. That's right, Joanne. But before we get into her story, let's describe what journalism looked like in the late 19th century. It was, you could say, an industry in flux. So in the 1880s, there were a bunch of fairly boring uh, newspapers. They were very uh, text-based. This is media historian David Mendich. He says there were elite newspapers, such as the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune, that covered business and stocks and had been around for decades. But they were also losing readers to a new breed of newspapers like the New York World and the New York Journal. These upstarts were published by Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Pulitzer and Hearst really introduced street life and street reporting and women's news and um, celebrity news to uh, the news universe of the late uh, 1880s and 1890s. And these papers are using sensational headlines, they're using very shaky research methods, and they're finding ways to gobble up as much readership as possible. You might recognize it. Reality TV. <laughs> or at the time, yellow journalism, right, to, to use that mm-hmm. term. And reporting became more exciting. They're completely blowing over their their rivals, the the elite newspapers. And so the elite newspapers had to make a decision. Were they going to join them in their sensationalism or were they just going to try to ridicule them? And they chose the second. Notably, the New York Times called it not only yellow journalism, but freak journalism. 
Mindich says that the older establishment papers also trumpeted the concept of objectivity. It became the new standard. A hallmark of objective reporting was its dispassionate tone. Try to cover the world in a very serious way, balanced, fair, conservative-minded in their reporting, and restrained in their language. A sense of detachment. You want reporters who can take themselves out of the story and seemingly give all sides of an event. And what we assume to simply be a timeless value in journalism is really a way for papers like the New York Times to get a larger slice of the market share. That strategy didn't quite boost circulation, but it did solidify the reputation of the New York Times as the paper of record. In contrast to those working-class rags, the New York Times proclaimed its paper, quote, does not soil the breakfast cloth, unquote. So that's the white press, the mainstream. But in the world of 19th century journalism, there's another player, the black press. There were scores of small, independently owned black newspapers across the country. Ida B. Wells made a name for herself in the black press. Historian Paula Giddings says that by the time she was 30 years old, Wells already co-owned a newspaper in Memphis, and her articles were being reprinted throughout the country. She's called the Princess of the Press. And she's written a lot, and she's really hailed, and people like her writing. She's she's one of the few uh, women, in fact, one of the few journalists that both women and men seem to read uh, equally. Wells wrote about the countless challenges that black Americans were facing after the Civil War. I mean, you had systematic disenfranchisement, you had Jim Crow laws, you had debt peonage, and of course, the most terrifying trend of all, lynching. There, there are genocidal threats. If you hear and read even in the, in the newspapers, the threats of the need to have to wipe out the evil uh, of blacks. Lynchings and other terror attacks on African Americans spiked in the 1880s and 1890s. Now, the white press covered some of these crimes, but most of the coverage followed a pretty standard script. You had an African-American man who commits some crime, usually a rape, and the white masses seek vigilante justice through some kind of violence. Now, implicit in this narrative was the belief among white Americans that blacks simply weren't ready for freedom. You had scientific journals that cited poverty rates as if somehow blacks had regressed in the late 19th century. You had notions of political power that were given too soon to black people, and Reconstruction was a failure in that respect. Um, The idea, of course, was that you had to control blacks from their otherwise primal state. Uh, again, to rationalize lynching, right. which was to protect white womanhood from what they said was the new Negro crime, which was the rape of white women all across uh, the South. So the northern elite newspapers covered lynching with appropriate um, disgust in that you know most of the, the articles were horrified by the practice of lynching. However, they balanced that disgust with a sense that African-Americans were committing crimes. In other words, Northerners never questioned the guilt of the victims. They just thought the criminals should be tried or convicted in a court of law instead of lynched by a mob. Then, in 1892, there were three men lynched in Memphis, Tennessee, and they happened to be friends of Ida B. Wells. Here's what happened. A black businessman named Thomas Moss owned a grocery store in Memphis. Two of his friends worked for him. His main business competitor was a white grocer. Who was in the same area. 
who was who was in the black neighborhood, right? Yes. Well, right? it was a neighborhood that was changing. You, you know, the South wasn't segregated until really relatively late. But this was a this was a, a area that had been white, uh, was beginning to change towards blacks, but it was still a mixed neighborhood at, at this point. But the problem is that when you compete in these small communities, it can create these moments of friction. And there is an incident. Two teenage boys got into a fistfight in front of the Moss grocery store. Older men of both races jumped in to break it up, but the fight escalated and turned into a small race riot. Remember that white grocer down the road? He smelled an opportunity. The white proprietor says that the really the real provocateurs of this uh, riot were the men of the People's Grocery, mm. who included Thomas Moss and uh, two other men. They, they decided to attack the grocery store. Uh, Moss and McDowell and Stewart took up arms and defended themselves against what ultimately became a, a band of white men armed who came to the establishment. Um, there was a gunfight, and shortly thereafter, the three men were lynched in, in pretty methodical fashion. It was a horrible, torturous lynching. And the, the, the reason why we know all these gory details is because the white press had actually been told in advance that the lynching was going to take place and where it was going to take place. The local white papers portrayed Moss as a rioter and a killer. Months later, another newspaper accused him of being a rapist. And how did those local white papers cover the lynching itself? Well, one adopted a high-minded, even reverential tone. There is no whooping, not even loud talking, no cursing, in fact, nothing boisterous. Everything was done decently and in order. The vengeance was sharp, swift, and sure, but administered with due regard to the fact that people were asleep all around the jail. Wells happened to be out of town when the lynching occurred, and when she got home, she began to piece together the real story. She realized that the kindling that ignited the riot, the gunfight, the lynching, was all a cover. The white grocer down the road simply wanted to put Moss out of business. This lynching was to, was to be a lesson uh, to blacks who deigned to uh, succeed and to emerge and to compete with whites and to fight back. And it really did kind of fix in her mind that the kinds of things that were happening to black people across the South couldn't all be traced back to some narrative about the evil black male rapist or sexual predator, but that there were economic issues that could also mm -hmm. be at the base of racial violence. So she begins to think about lynching anew. If Thomas Moss was guilty of nothing but competing with white people, what is happening with all these other lynchings that I'm, that I'm, I'm reading about? Wells began traveling across the South to do her own investigations of lynchings. I mean, think about it. No one else in the white press was even trying to get the facts. But Ida B. Wells, she was fearless. And so she goes to actual scenes of the crime. She actually goes to the scenes. She documents everything. Imagine, you know, someone who's literally, you know, trouncing around in the woods, right, investigating the marks under a lynching tree. Uh, she interviews... Uh, witnesses. Investigative journalism being carried out by a woman of color, um, you know, oftentimes in, in, at night or, you know, under some kind of, you know, false story to kind of get her access to certain people. The other thing I, uh, Wells did, by the way, was to um, send uh, private investigators to some of these uh, lynchings. White investigators, in fact, who reported back to her. 
She also poured through data in establishment papers and, really like a sociologist, began to notice certain patterns. Eventually, she reached some explosive conclusions. She shows that, um, you know, the majority, the great majority of blacks weren't even accused of rape, uh, much less guilty of it. When it was charged, rape was charged only after the lynching. Wow. Wow. She began to systematically unpack and refute the, the lie that African-Americans were lawless. Wells printed her conclusions in an unsigned editorial in her newspaper. Nobody in this section believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men assault white women. If Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves, and a conclusion will be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Soon after she published that editorial, a white mob destroyed her printing press in Memphis. They chased her partners out of town, and she fled too. Wells went to New York and published an anti-lynching pamphlet called Southern Horrors. She was invited then to speak to audiences across the U.S. and Britain, and she helped make lynching an international scandal. Now, somehow, Nathan, I don't think you're going to tell me at this point that those big establishment papers rushed to hire Ida Wells. I will not tell you that. Let Mindich tell it. And the New York Times called her a nasty-minded mulattress um, <laughs> and called on sober Americans right. uh, to repudiate her. Remember how those major papers of the day prided themselves on their objectivity? Well, Wells' reporting on lynching actually demolished a lot of that because for all of their devotion to balance, it never occurred to the big presses to question the guilt of the lynching victims. So, in effect, they missed the real story. Nathan, I'm confused. I mean, here's this woman trudging uh, through dangerous landscape to collect facts, to find evidence. How is it that these so-called objective New York Times can critique that? Well, when you have a, a, a press room that has all white men um, and you don't have a, a set of you know, diverse perspectives about something as you know, simple as whether or not a crime was committed, um, it really leaves you out of position when somebody else comes on the scene with you know, new evidence. So, so her advocacy mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. what made her more objective. It didn't necessarily make her more objective, but it made her more effective. And that, and that I think, is, is a very important distinction, right? If objectivity is thought of as being the gold standard in this period, and there's a way in which, you know, a kind of perceived or, or projected distance from the issues somehow made the account more true. What Ida B. Wells basically showed is that by caring enough to put, again, feet on the ground, to ask the questions, to find ways to get to the bottom of things, because, frankly, she cared about black life, she ended up writing better journalism, right? It wasn't that it was necessarily... More objective journalism, you might say. Well, it, was, it wasn't emotionally distant. It, 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 just, it was more accurate, yeah. But it was a journalism that put a whole set of facts... I was about to use the word fact. <laughs> I was going to say, so they don't like her facts, so they attack her motives. The New York Times was often using the same criticisms of Wells that it used against Pulitzer and Hearst for being kind of sensational journalists. And it's almost as if white reporters couldn't fathom that uh, African Americans were being terrorized by whites in the South. I mean, that probably would go against their concept of America as being a fair country. 
So Nathan, I have a question. I'm, I'm actually curious. How much did Wells' work actually change the myths that were circulating about lynching? Well, according to David Mindich, it took the white mainstream press decades to get around to recognizing Wells' investigative work. Black Americans, as a point of contrast, recognized almost immediately that what Wells was doing was digging up the truth. Frederick Douglass said to Ida B. Wells, you know, until I read your reporting, I had thought that African-American crimes contributed to lynching. And so, you know, if Frederick Douglass you know, arguably the leading 19th century civil rights figure had bought into these lies, you know that this was a widespread pervasive belief that just basically everyone believed. Ida B. Wells was restoring reputations. And in many cases, she vindicated African-Americans who had not only been murdered, but who had been dishonored by false accusations. She also preserved their deaths for our historical record. My name is Lisa Lenore, and I am an ancestor of one of the men listed in Ida B. Wells' work on lynching. Wells reported that Samuel Woods, Lenore's great-great-grandfather, had been lynched, quote, without reason. I think that when people see names in the paper, they just think, oh, it's someone's name. But they don't realize that there's families that are attached to these names and hopes and dreams and you know, so many aspirations. So when she put that in this document, that was so powerful for us as a family to really reconnect with this portion of our history that we were not, we did not know about because it was so painful. It was in the background, but it, but to have it documented just really elevated it even more so for me. Lenore, a former reporter, says that she draws inspiration from Wells as an investigative journalist. It's really a twin legacy. Wells was a pioneer of investigative and advocacy journalism. Well, one of her phrases was, she said, the people must know before they can act. Hmm. And so what her, her overarching objective was always to inform people about uh, what was happening in a way that would help them to act. Paula Giddings is a historian at Smith College and author of Ida, A Sword Among Lions. David Mindich also helped tell that story. He's a professor of media studies and journalism at St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont, and the author of Just the Facts, How Objectivity Came to Define American Journalism. Now, when I was interviewing David Mendich, he actually mentioned something about the relationship between social media and the mainstream press that I thought was pretty important. Take a listen. You can draw a pretty close parallel between the black press of the uh, late 19th century and 20th century to black Twitter, for example. Right. Um, black Twitter tries to fill a void that's left by a mainstream press that's not covering these issues enough or carefully enough or accurately enough. I couldn't help but think about other examples of there being a tension between voices that might be on the margins and more mainstream journalistic voices. I mean, does any of this feel like it's a longer American tradition? 
Nathan, I think it's a very long American tradition, and your use of the word margin, I think, defines what we mean by advocacy journalism. So whether it's the period of Ida B. Wells or whether it's Black Twitter, uh, advocacy journalism is about inserting issues into public discourse that are not being put there by either one of the mainstream parties. And this travels, well, certainly all the way back through the late 19th century. Now, we just heard about the rise of objectivity, and this is mm-hmm. a, a kind of the new kid on the block. But the fact of the matter is that political parties and newspapers remained uh, locked uh, in this inseparable embrace. And I want to be very clear about this. These newspapers advocated for things. That's what they're there for, right? Exactly. The Democrats want small government. They want states' rights. The Republicans want a strong tariff. When you go back to somebody like Ida B. Wells, what makes her an advocate and what makes advocacy journalism is she's pushing for a set of issues that neither party that supposedly represents America (laughs) is even talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, to Mm -hmm. me, that's the definition of advocacy journalism, whether it's Ida B. Wells or whether it's Black Twitter. But now that gets complicated if you jump all the way back. You know, on the one hand, it's easy to look back to the very beginning of the Republic and and the Federalists and the Republicans on the first hand Hamilton, on the other hand Jefferson, and look at them and say, well, okay, those are quote unquote parties and that press is partisan and they've created newspapers to speak their voice. And their followers too are a bunch of elite, wealthy white guys who are arguing about issues. for the wealthy. (laughs) Right. But let's imagine that Thomas Jefferson was here. Okay. Okay. (laughs) He might say, well, you know, his press was advocating for marginalized people, meaning white men who are not elite and wealthy and not represented by the Federalist Party. Now, that's not what we're talking about in this later period. But when we talk about an advocacy journalism, who are the advocates and who is being represented? Right. So in the case of, like, say, you know, the the North Star, right, as a paper that was abolitionist, you know, started by Frederick Douglass, I mean, that, I presume, would count as kind of advocacy press as opposed to a paper for the average kind of Whig political operative. But, um, you know, the the question of, you know, party lines, I think, is really important because in the contemporary moment, I think we absolutely conflate, you know, what may seem like simple advocacy work on a a station like MSNBC versus Fox. I mean, we see those as partisan conversations. Right. Right. Those are partisan in media. And so to try to disentangle that, at least from my own kind of 20th century perspective, feels a bit difficult. But one of the things that links advocacy journalism to partisanship, Joanne and Nathan, I think is that this is where changes in party positions come from, right? So we have Mm, this populist farmer's party at the end of the 19th century. Well, they took over the Democratic Party and they advocated for things that were considered wacky initially, like the free coinage of silver. And that's the Democratic Party's platform. Now, that now becomes a mainstream party's platform. So Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. do we get change from? How do parties Mm -hmm. change their positions? Well, I think you have to go back a little bit to advocacy journalism. And I think it raises the idea that we have to think about, we might have been talking about journalism and or politics as being either proactive or reactive. And of course, they're both both. And I think we're looking at a situation today uh, 
that that is so obvious, I hesitate to mention it, I'm going to put Breitbart News in the category of advocacy journalism. They are advocating for a set of policies that some have described as the alt-right or white Mm -hmm. nationalism that have been very marginalized in American politics for some time. And they are claiming to represent a very marginalized group of people, uh, relatively poor. And we're watching how not only some of those ideas are infused into one mainstream party, the Republican Party, how it's actually embodied in the White House in the personage of Steve Bannon. All right. So, Brian, so based on what I'm hearing, it sounds like you're drawing a long historical equivalency between Ida B. Wells and Breitbart News. It's your turn to talk, Joanne. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Talk about Uh, a track. uh, I'll take that one, Nathan. I'll take that set up and uh, I'll own it in a way. I'm really talking about the process of how issues make it into the mainstream and get picked up by our two-party system. Who puts issues that nobody is talking about on the agenda for the nation? And I think Mm -hmm. advocacy journalists, whether they're operating factually or not, play a crucial role in that. All right. So just so we're clear, we're not drawing a long historical equivalency between, say, contemporary, you know, news like Breitbart that, for instance, you know, just ran a story about Somali um, immigrants with a picture of DMX as a Somali immigrant on the one hand. Were there man bats in that story? (laughs) There might might as well be. In the background. And and the the early kind of investigative, you know, hard-hitting field work of someone like an Ida B. Wells. Absolutely not. But I do take your point that if you think about the the social function of these various outfits and what they're doing, I would have to agree that they are pulling ideas that should be considered um, at least equally marginal in their respective moments and trying to move them onto a kind of central kind of uh, track in American life. And their political function. I was going to say the social and political function. Absolutely. Right. We're going to turn now to East Los Angeles in August of 1970. Last night, a group of Mexican-Americans, who are sometimes called Chicanos, held a rally to protest the disproportionate number of Chicanos killed in Vietnam. This is from an NBC Evening News report. The rally had turned violent, but reporters who flocked to the scene weren't just covering the riot. One of their colleagues had been killed. One tear gas projectile, like this one, was fired into the Silver Dollar Cafe on Whittier Boulevard when patrons were too slow to evacuate it. The projectile apparently struck one of those inside, a well-known Los Angeles newspaper man and television news director, Ruben Salazar, struck him on the side of the head, killing him instantly. Ruben Salazar was well-known to local reporters when he was killed by a police tear gas canister. In fact, he had one of the first Latino bylines in an Anglo newspaper, the LA Times. In death... Salazar quickly became more than a professional journalist covering a civil rights movement. Backstory producer Ramona Martinez reports that Salazar's career shows how hard it can be for journalists to balance advocacy and conventional reporting. 
1968, Ruben Salazar got a letter from the L.A. Times. He was in Mexico City serving as the newspaper's bureau chief. Salazar was an old-school, Cronkite-era reporter. He had been with the L.A. Times for nine years, including a stint covering the Vietnam War. In Mexico, he had been enjoying his promotion to bureau chief. But his editors were recalling him back to L.A. They needed him on his old beat, the Mexican-American beat. Because the Times really didn't have anyone else. This is filmmaker Philip Rodriguez. Well, there were a lot of reasons for it, but ultimately, some of his editors believed that Ruben would do a better job of, of, of reporting this phenomenon than, than other people might. This phenomenon he refers to is what's now known as the Chicano movement. It was a decades-long civil rights struggle for Mexican-Americans, and in 1968, it had exploded on the streets of L.A. We have the lowest reading rate in East L.A., in the, in the East Side schools. News reports covered the activism. In one case... 15,000 students from some of L.A.'s poorest neighborhoods staged a walkout. We have graduates to graduate from high school, to graduate and are out to face the world and can only read an eighth and a ninth grade reading level. And we believe this is a crisis. This was the politically charged atmosphere Ruben Salazar encountered when he returned to L.A. in 1969. Felix Gutierrez is a journalism professor at the University of Southern California. He was a student activist back then. This was a period of activism, of picketing, of protesting, marches, demands, uh, confrontations, some of them violent, between establishment authorities, whether it's law enforcement, schools, health officials, or whatever, as a community developed its own identity and its own name for, it, uh, for what it was, which is the Chicano movement. Salazar wasn't thrilled about his new assignment. Philip Rodriguez says that although Salazar believed Mexican-Americans were underserved, he didn't really identify with the young Chicano activists. You know, he was a silent generation-era American, a Korean War veteran, hard worker, and and very much an assimilationist. He married a, a white lady, a gringa, and lived in Orange County. Rodriguez says that at first, Salazar was skeptical of the Chicano movement's militant tactics. Its leaders included groups like the Brown Berets, modeled on the Black Panthers. And, and, we, and when he first started hearing their rhetoric and witnessing their rather brash, insistent style, I think Salazar was taken aback and a little mistrustful of what was going on. But Salazar covered the Chicano movement seriously. He wrote about plans for strikes, interviewed the Brown Berets, and spent time in the barrios. He reported on the indictment of movement organizers like Sal Castro, who faced 66 years in prison for helping students plan the East L.A. walkouts. He also wrote about bilingual public schools on the U.S.-Mexico border. But by 1970, after just one year reporting on the Chicano movement, Salazar started to get restless. Salazar's next move might have seemed strange for an Orange County Cronkite-era reporter. He became news director of a Spanish-language television station in Los Angeles called KMEX. But he didn't sever his ties to the L.A. Times. He also wrote a weekly opinion column for the paper. Felix Gutierrez says in those columns, Salazar began to speak more openly about his perspective as a Mexican-American. 
This took some of his former news colleagues by surprise. Here's who I am. Here's the way I see things. Here's the way the people look look at things. And their story was that he was good old Rube at the L.A. Times uh, before he left. And he started, then they start seeing his columns. They realize he's not one of the boys. He has had different experiences, and he sees things differently than we, we do. The siesta is over, a series designed to further understanding between the Anglo and Mexican-American communities. Here's Ruben Salazar in a 1970 interview with a local television station. Salazar is talking to journalist Bob Navarro. Navarro speaks first. Well, here you were at the Los Angeles Times, large metropolitan daily and newspaper with an international reputation, riding a crest of a career. All of a sudden, you leave the Times... You go to Channel 34, like I said before, a Spanish-speaking station. Why? I, I felt like I made a full circle uh, at the Times, and uh, I was very happy there. But uh, the most important thing about my move to me was that I was uh, frustrated. I wanted to really communicate with the people uh, about uh, whom I had been writing for for so long, with uh, the Mexican-American community directly, and in their language. Because you see, As news director of KMEX, Salazar continued covering the Chicano protest movement. He also began investigating the Los Angeles Police Department and the L.A. County Sheriff's Office and documenting police violence. Gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson wrote that Salazar's relations with the police were growing increasingly hostile. When Salazar got onto a routine story about some worthless kid named Ramirez getting beaten to death in a jail fight, he was likely to come up with almost anything, including a series of hard-hitting news commentaries strongly suggesting that the victim had been beaten to death by the jailers. In the summer of 1970, Ruben Salazar was warned three times by the cops to tone down his coverage, and each time he told them to f*** off. Salazar was beginning to rethink his role as a journalist. Here's Bob Navarro again, asking him about it. I may be making a judgment that's unfair, but it seems to me that you're leaving a position as a reporter who should be, quote, objective, and venturing into an area of advocacy. Right. You're absolutely right. I think all this uh, talk about objectivity in the press is so unrealistic. I remember that uh, the, a great quote from, uh, I forget what poet it was, but it said, he said that man is an emotional animal, not a rational one. And I believe that strongly. And so consequently, if man is an emotional animal and not a rational one, objectivity is impossible. And I don't think there's a newsman alive who really thinks that objectivity is the name of the game in the news media. But is advocacy the name of the game? Can you work as a functional day-to-day reporter in the position of advocacy? I'm only advocating uh, the Mexican-American community, just like the general media is, is advocating, really, our economy, our country, our way of life. So I'm just advocating a community within a com- community, which, by the way, the general community has totally ignored. And so someone must advocate that. Historian Mario Garcia thinks this advocacy came at a price. And Salazar had the feeling that he was being spied upon, 
that uh, he was being investigated, that uh, at one point he felt that things from his desk in his office had been gone through and so forth, and uh, he felt that uh, there was an effort by the police to strike back at him. The day before the protest where he was killed, his boss said, I'll see you on Monday. Salazar replied, yeah, if I survive, you'll see me. The next time his boss saw him, he was identifying Salazar's body. He was 42 when he died. Felix Gutierrez says that no charges were brought against the police deputy who fired the tear gas canister that struck Salazar. It appears to have been an accident, according to reporters who have examined redacted files. But many Chicanos, including Gutierrez, weren't so sure. It just didn't ring true that uh, this was just happenstance or a circumstance of errors that, it, that had made this happen. And he, uh, ra- he was raised to iconic status uh, by our people because he had been our voice. Overnight, Salazar became a martyr for the Chicano movement. Hundreds of Mexican-Americans came to pay their respects while his body laid in state in East L.A., But Philip Rodriguez says Salazar's martyrdom is misplaced. He had been reporting on the Chicano movement and thought it was an important story. But he wasn't an activist. They appropriated Rubin and his memory. Uh, Rubin, who really wasn't a member of their movement. Rubin, who really was a a bystander, an onlooker, a, a chronicler. And it was a strange fit. Even his widow one day said, I don't recognize the man that they've made out of my my husband-to-be. He wouldn't recognize himself. Mario Garcia says that Ruben Salazar valued his identity as a mainstream journalist. Because he, I think, so much of him still wanted to be respected as a professional journalist. He didn't want, again, to be stereotyped as a Mexican journalist, and he certainly would not want to be stereotyped as a Chicano activist or a Chicano movement journalist. So it was part of his inner struggles, I think, Filmmaker Philip Rodriguez thinks Salazar was killed before he could resolve that tension. So what makes Ruben Salazar interesting is that in a certain way he was neither fish nor fowl, that he was trying to both understand and responsibly report on a very rapidly changing uh, environment. That piece was brought to us by Backstory producer Ramona Martinez. We also heard from Philip Rodriguez, Felix Gutierrez, and Mario T. Garcia. Okay, so Nathan, Brian, I got to ask a question. Um, In that piece we just heard, um, a little while back... Um, We heard Salazar say during that interview that objectivity in journalism is unrealistic, which is kind of a smack you in the face kind of a phrase. And I don't even actually at this particular moment know how I want to respond to that, but I do (laughs) want to respond. And I want but I also want to know what do you think about that? That's that's such a remarkable statement. Well, I think 
I'm a big believer, frankly, in accuracy over objectivity. I think I think what Salazar said resonated strongly with me. It actually resonates with how I think about the historical work that so many scholars do that, you know, you can document and document and document in ways that are deeply rigorous. But to claim mm-hmm. as if that you're some dispassionate observer, that you don't have a personal stake in the work, I think is just false. And, and I go so far as to say, in fact, that anybody who claims objectivity is actually making a claim to a certain kind of power, right? It's listen to my voice over over other mm. voices at, that are out there because I'm giving you the real story, you know, and so I'm always very suspicious. Anybody, mm. whether they be a journalist or a scholar who claims to have some kind of objective stance relative to the information. Right. I do think we need to distinguish between the individual's quest to get as close to objective as possible, understanding that one is never going to get there, whether we're historians or journalists, on the one hand, and the need for institutions uh, to nurture a number of different perspectives. I think there are dangers in both. I could point to uh, the hegemony. Ooh, it's a big word. That's right. We're not allowed (laughs) to use that. I could point to the relative monopoly on sources of news uh, from the early 1960s well into the early 1980s, basically a monopoly by the network news. They were all about, quote, objective uh, news. And of course, what they did was left out news about lots of things. I could point to the current situation we're in today with multiple outlets where we can't even seem to agree on basic facts. And we seem to be caught in between uh, the two ends of this continuum. Well, I think part of it is having sources that, you know, the people who are reading this material can trust. I mean, you know, it's it's a very very important service that, for instance, the government provides, simply collecting data, right? And, yeah. and I think one of the most important um, kind of functions of creating a viable body politic is at least knowing that census data is going to be correct. Data about changes in the environment or, in, dare one say, in climate, right, are actually real yeah. things. Unemployment um, data. Unemployment, right? And I think part of what's happening now, sadly, is that you're seeing, for instance, you know, the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development is being encouraged not to keep track of information relative to housing segregation, right? Or, you know, data around climate change is somehow considered to be partisan, going back to your earlier point. So that, to me, is very dangerous territory. And I think there's a way where you can still be skeptical of claims for objectivity, but believe very strongly, as I do and I know we we all do here, that facts themselves need to be marshaled, need to be collected, need to be cataloged, and need to be part of our civic discourse. Well, that's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your history questions. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free to review the new show in the iTunes store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aiden Lee, Courtney Spagna, Robin Blue, and Elizabeth Spach. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza and Pottington Bear. 
Special thanks this week to the Virginia Museum of Transportation, KCBS-TV in Los Angeles, and to our voice actors, Sharon Milner and James Scales. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.